the year ends, we're looking back and maybe even a little bit forward at some of the best films of 2022. It was a year for sequels like Jurassic Park Dominion, Thor, Love and Thunder, and Top Gun Maverick. It was also a year of horror films like Nope, Smile, and Barbarian. The film industry has had to adapt to our pandemic movie-watching habits. As we look back, we'll take a look at what that has meant for Hollywood for this edition of the 1A Movie Club. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. We have a lot to cover after this short break. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp, offering online access to licensed therapists. Therapist Joy Berkheimer shares how BetterHelp uses their intake questionnaire to help clients find a therapist that makes them feel comfortable. Finding the therapist that's the right fit for you is like dating. (laughs) Uh, You are literally over here swiping and swiping, right? Um, No, this therapist might be good for me. No, they will not relate to me whatsoever. They're not going to understand me. What's really nice about BetterHelp is how they have updated the way that you can search for a therapist that fits you. So now it is so specific around Hey, what's their gender? What's their cultural backgrounds? People in our country and other countries might feel marginalized for different reasons. And BetterHelp is really good at making sure that you can put your preferences in and set yourself up for having the healthiest space to be honest and flow through your processing. To learn more and get 10% off your first month of online therapy, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Welcome to another edition of The Movie Club. Do you forget the feeling? People are incapable of not caring. People are amazing. That was a clip from the new film, The Whale, out in limited release now. The film has been in production for 10 years. It began as a play written by Samuel Hunter, and the film adaptation is directed by Darren Aronofsky. Aronofsky is best known for intense films such as Black Swan and Requiem for a Dream, and his latest is no different. The Whale has gotten buzz not only for its famed director, but because of the comeback role for actor Brendan Fraser. Fraser has been out of the spotlight for several years. He says he was blacklisted after he spoke out about being a victim of sexual abuse in Hollywood. The film is also receiving attention for its controversial subject matter. Fraser plays a gay, obese, reclusive English teacher who's looking to reconnect with his young daughter. The film set a record for the biggest limited release of the year and is set for wide release on December 21st. Joining us now is the screenwriter of the film and the writer of the original play, Samuel Hunter. Sam, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I understand you started working on the play that would become The Whale about 13 years ago. What was your inspiration? Yeah, I, you know, I, at the time, I was teaching uh, essay writing like, like Charlie does in the, the main character does in the, in the film. And, uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to be a playwright. I had gone to school for, for playwriting. I just started to see some of my plays get produced. Um, but, uh, you know, but I was spending, you know, five, six days a week teaching very disaffected college freshmen how to write essays, which is something that I probably didn't even know how to do very well. Um, and it, it was so, the kind of teaching I was doing felt so anathema 
to my work as a playwright because my my goal in teaching these kids was to get them to sort of depersonalize everything they were writing and uh, make it more objective and more clear. And at a certain point, like Charlie does in the film, I, I got a little desperate and I asked my students to write something honest and, and just because I felt like they weren't writing anything they actually believed. They were just trying to give me what I wanted to hear. And I had a student write me a line that ended up in the play and the film, which was, I think I need to accept that my life isn't going to be very exciting. Um, and it was kind of this bracing moment of honesty uh, that that really, you know, shook me. And, and um, so I started writing a play about an expository writing teacher. Uh, and I, I started a version of the play that bared no resemblance at all to what the, 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 the play and the movie are now. Um, and it, it just wasn't landing for me. Like it, it felt too intellectual, it, it, and and so I, I kind of at a, at a certain point kind of took my own assignment and and wrote something more honest and started accessing some more personal stuff for me about you know growing up gay in a small town in Idaho where Charlie lives. Uh, I attended a, a very religious school, an evangelical school uh, that I was eventually outed and had to leave. And for years after that, I fell into depression and self-medicated with food. Um, so I started to kind of put those more personal stories on the line for me, and that's what eventually grew into into the whale. Religion, as you mentioned, it's a huge component of this film. Um, mm. One of the characters is a missionary who's trying to sort of save Charlie, Brendan Fraser's character. They're just a handful of characters really in the entire film, and, and he's mm. one that appears multiple times. Why was this aspect of the film, and, and why was this perspective important to include? I think, you know, over the years I've written, you know, I've written, you know, 15 or so plays since I since I wrote The Whale back in 2009, 2010, and, and I frequently write about religion. I just feel like it's an underexplored aspect of American life, and it's, and it's a huge part of the culture right now. I mean, it's, it's shaped our politics. It's shaped our, our, you know, our entire society. I mean, it's, and, it, and I just feel like it's funny whenever I have meetings with like television executives, I always, they, they always say like, what do you want to make? And I was like, I want to make a show about modern evangelicals in America. And it's like, as soon as I say that, it's like, I hit the power down button. on <laughs> They just like deflate immediately because they feel like it's, it's, we can't talk about that or it's like a third rail or something. Um, so, you know, The Whale is just one of the plays that I've written over the years that, that explores uh, how, uh, you know, a certain brand of, of Christianity affects modern life in America. Well, and it's such a crucial part of his, the main character's origin story and, and sort of mm. how he got to be who he is. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, he has a, a partner who um, was a part of a local church that uh, is not identical to the one that I was involved with in my hometown, but bears a lot of resemblance to it. And, and uh, you know, nothing in the play is directly autobiographical, but I felt that, you know, his partner was deep within that theology and could not reconcile his sexuality with his religious beliefs. Uh, and, and that was kind of the the main trauma in Charlie's life was born out of that. And, uh, you know, it's something I experienced. It's something it took me years to reconcile. Uh, in many ways, I'm still reconciling it. We're talking with screenwriter Samuel Hunter about the new indie film, The Whale. Sam, there's been some backlash with the way obesity is portrayed in the film, especially mm. the use of the fat suit on Brendan Fraser 
the production team and Fraser worked with the Obesity Action Coalition to advise in the making of the film. But how do you respond to people who say it portrays being overweight or obese in a way for audiences to sort of leer at? It's really tough. I mean, you know, as a storyteller, I was just trying to, like, render a whole human being. And, you know, this is not... I've never made, like, broad statements about anybody or anything with my plays. I mean... Uh, it's funny. I, I it's I feel like I'm the least controversial playwright in America, just because I'm I'm just writing these stories about human beings, um, and this is only one specific human being. Uh, you know, in my life, my depression resulted in weight gain, uh, but that's not everybody. You know, and and plenty of people are big and happy and healthy, uh, but that wasn't me, and that wasn't the story. I wanted to tell. Um, I think most people, after seeing the film, realize that that we're approaching it with a deep sense of empathy and compassion. Um, but again, this is just one specific story. The film also has once again brought up the conversation about actors playing characters with identities that they don't share. You know, in this instance, Frasier plays a gay man. As the screenwriter who based the story off of your own experience, what are your thoughts on you know these questions of authenticity and representation? I mean, obviously, representation is really important, but, you know, at the end of the day, I've seen a lot of different people do this role. You know, I, I followed it around from, it originated in Denver before it even came to New York, then I went to New York, then I uh, went to uh, Los Angeles and then Chicago, and it's been produced dozens and dozens of times since then. I mean, it was recently produced in Finland, you know. Um, so I know what the role needs on an actor level, and I know that Darren, I wasn't part of the casting process, but I know that Darren looked at, you know, we started talking about this 10 years ago. And I, and I know that he started looking at actors 10 years ago. I, I, I wasn't part of that process. I don't know who he looked at. I know he looked at hundreds of different people, both famous and non-famous. Um, but Brendan was the first name that he brought to me. And when uh, we basically, Darren rented a little theater in the East Village and we did a reading of the screenplay as one would do a reading of the play. Uh, and Brandon just was so incredibly lived in in the role and brought so much to it that was so beautiful uh, and heartfelt. And I think that, like, you know, Brendan is a deeply kind and generous human being, and I think he brings that kindness and generosity to the role, uh, and I really think that shows in the film. You mentioned that this film has been in production for a long time, for about 10 years. What took so long to bring the story from the stage onto the screen? I think it was, a, it was a few different things. I mean, I think Darren, when we first started meeting, we didn't really know what this wanted to be. I mean, you know, he saw this play in 2012 and uh, I mean, it was running at Playwrights Horizons 10 years ago today. Um, and we had this first meeting and it was very tentative because both of us were like, what does this want to be? You know, like, and in the beginning, I was nervous about it because I don't think this is a story or a play that wants to be opened up in the traditional way that you would open up a, a play by, you know, adding characters, adding locations, adding flashbacks or something like that. Um, but I was also, you know, I had never written a, I've done some screenwriting in the past decade since then, but I had never written a movie you know, when I was talking to Darren, so I was like, well, maybe I just don't, maybe this is just my playwright brain. Like, I don't understand how to open this up. But like, every time I ideated about how to open it up, it just like, it was like picking up water. It just fell through my fingers. Um, but in one of our early meetings, Darren, without me saying anything, said, let's keep it in the apartment. Um, 
And that's that's a pretty brave choice. You know, I, I had talked to some other directors over the years as Darren, you know, like he, he kind of wandered away from the film for a few years to make Mother. And so like, but his company still had rights to the play. And so I talked with other directors and they all had ideas that just didn't really work. Um, and so thank God that Darren was the person to, to make this film. But, uh, but it took us 10 years because I think we needed to make it the right way. We just have 30 seconds or so, Sam, but quickly before I let you go, what do you want people to have in their minds as they walk into the theater? I think this is a story about uh, hard-won hope and optimism. I mean, I think if you approach this film with any amount of cynicism, then it's just not going to work for you. But um, I think it's a very earnest story. It wears its heart on its sleeve. And so I just hope that people meet its, you know, its earnestness with an open mind. Sam Hunter, screenwriter for the film The Whale. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you. And we'll be back with more in just a moment. We're looking back at the year in film with Aisha Harris, who joins us from Oakland, California. She hosts NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Aisha, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me. And in New York City, Candace Frederick. She's senior culture reporter for HuffPost. Candace, thanks for joining us. Thank you. In L.A., John Horn, our now official vice president of the movie club. He's also host of the Retake podcast and covers arts and entertainment for KPCC. John, always a pleasure. So we just heard from Sam Hunter, the screenwriter of The Whale. I just saw that film last night. It was fascinating, I have to say. But I want to turn it over to all of you, our experts. I'm not an expert movie critic. (laughs) So give us your thoughts on the film. Uh, Aisha, I'll start with you. Uh, Well, I I think... It's a film that is going to, it's already brought up a lot of conversation around the depiction of fat people on screen. And I have to say, I was not, um, it, it, it really kind of shocked me how fat phobic it seemed to be, how it's very, very obvious and not at all subtle. Um, it, overall, as a film, it didn't work for me. And I, I found it hard to believe uh, a lot of what was going on in that film. So it definitely was a movie that. I can't say that I would uh, recommend to the people that I that I know. John, it's a complicated movie. I I agree with what Aisha said. Um, I was watching the audience watch the film, and at the end of the film, they were really moved. A lot of people were wiping tears away. So it does have an effect on you. I do have issues with representation. Uh, you know, the fat suit. You know, is this any different from a straight actor playing a gay part? Uh, I I think not. And I started reading some criticism this morning, and I'm going to just quote from two things. Roxane, Roxane Gay in the New York Times said, the disdain the filmmakers seem to have for their protagonist is constant and inescapable. And then Rich uh, Juswiak and Jezebel said, did no one think maybe a movie about a fat guy made by non-fat people needs to do a little bit more than describe fatness as a prescription for misery? The one thing I really wish, there's a person who comes and drops off food, kind of a food delivery guy, and and he never sees Charlie, the character played by Brendan Fraser, and at the end, he does see him. And I was really hoping that the food delivery guy wouldn't have some sort of judgment on his appearance, and yet he runs off as if he's seen Frankenstein. And that, to me was such a possible moment of somebody just seeing him for a person rather than uh, somebody who is morbidly obese, and they missed that shot. I mean, knowing, hearing Sam Hunter talk about uh, writing the play from his own experiences to some degree, um, how, do you, how do you factor that information in? 
I think it's tricky. I mean, I, this is obviously a very personal story uh, to him. And, and yet I just thought that there wasn't enough empathy for Brand, for Brandon's character. I just, it, it just felt like, like everything they were doing was a little bit kind of shocking. It, I never felt that anybody saw him for who he was as a person. Um, and that's why the, you know, the Postmates guy, I thought, really exemplified the problem with the film. They had a chance to show somebody seeing him as a person, and they missed that shot. And yes, it is a, it, I'm sure they got a lot of stuff right about what it means to be fat and how difficult it is to get around and the shame. And this is obviously a story about somebody whose who's, uh, illness, whose mental illness, whose unhappiness, you know, is, is food addiction, just as somebody with a drug addiction can't stop taking drugs. Again, but I thought that's all very kind of surface. And I just wish they'd gotten more into people seeing him for who he is because so much of the story is about the way he sees others. Um, I just felt there was more, I wish there's more to the story, uh, Can- I guess is my take. Yeah. Candace, I'd love to hear your take as well. I think, you know, to everyone else's point, I think there's, it's not an easy film. It's a very deeply complex movie, I think. And I think that it's not an easy, you know, again, it's not an easy film to watch. I think there are multiple truths. I think that, um, I think that it, it was, there's certainly, I can understand the accusations of fat, fat phobia. I can understand even what was just said about the pizza delivery guy. Um, I think, I think the whale is a very specific story about one person's experience with both depression and obesity. I don't, I think to put, and I think this is my issue with a lot of representation conversations, is that to put this, to to have this be like the single, like, oh, all all obese people don't have these issues, but this particular character does have this issue. And I, I think largely because I went in and I, I, I felt more and more just sad as the story progressed. But I think that when by the end of the movie and in the way in which I think that Charlie is um, his overall arc, there's such a release of the somberness that I think weighs very heavily on the film. Um, I think the, it's funny, I was listening to a little bit of Sam Hunter's conversation when he talked about religion. I think that is deeply interesting, the way in which they, um, the way in which Charlie contends with it. Um, so that's, that's, that's pretty much like the, my, the short, uh, my short answer to what I uh, appreciate about the well. I was alone in the screening room when I watched it, but I too was crying. And I think everybody that that has seen it that I've talked to um, so far left it crying for one reason or another. And um, it's definitely hard to watch. But um, but let's move on to another film, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Uh, We're introduced to the mundane and the stressful lives of an Asian American family running their own business. But the characters become larger than life as their universe expands in every direction. What's happening? I'm not your husband. 
I'm another version of one from another universe. I'm here because we need your help. Very busy today, uh, so time to help you. Across the multiverse, I've seen thousands of Evelyns. You can access all of their memories, their emotions, even their skills. There's a great evil spreading throughout the many verses. And you may be your only chance of stopping it. Don't make me fight you. I am really good. I don't believe you. Aisha, I'll go back to you. How'd you feel about this film? Oh, this was hands down my favorite movie of the year. I have never had a theatrical theatrical experience quite like seeing this movie. And I saw it twice in the theaters. And even the second time, there were so many new things that I discovered. And I'm sure once I go back and rewatch it a third and fourth, there'll be even more. Um, it's just really profound. And, it, you know, if, if for people who may not be familiar with it, it's, it's about a woman played by Michelle Yeoh, who owns a family laundromat, and the laundromat is in trouble. And she also has an estranged relationship with her daughter. And she discovers these multiple parallel universes um, and that represent other paths she could have chosen in her life. And she tries to use them to win back her estranged daughter. And this movie has so many genres. It's 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 getting into um, martial arts. There is, uh, you know, there's obviously sort of the multiverse. We've seen this in a lot of superhero movies as of late. Um, and it's just such great performances. It's profound. It's existential. Um, I can't recommend it enough. And I think what the Daniels, the directors of this film did, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Shiner have done is is just mind-blowing, and I think people, if they have not checked it out yet, should absolutely check it out. It's just really fantastic. Candace, I know you thought this film had some of the best performances of the year. Why? Oh, man. I mean, one, I just, I think when we talk about going back to the representation conversation, when we talk about Asian, um, Asian American representation, I think it has too often um, been single di- single dimensional. And I think because, in part because of the multi-universe um, here and in part because we see these people in extraordinary situations, increasingly bizarre situations that have such a human under undercurrent. And I think there's deep complexities that, that uh, every performer really has to interpret in their performance. And I think, I think that's, one, really, really difficult for each of them, but I also think it's something that they all, they all do so well and passionately. I want to move on to the film Tar uh, with Kate Blanchett. She plays a fictional, world-renowned conductor named Lydia Tar. The film focuses on the famous conductor's downward spiral, which is set off by a series of bad behavior and bad decisions in both her personal and professional life. I'm worried starting to disappear into yourself. You want to dance the mask, you must service the composer. You've got to supplement yourself, your ego, and yes, your identity. You must, in fact, stand in front of the public and God and obliterate yourself. I saw this one, too, and for those who haven't seen it, you can probably tell it was intense. Aisha, what do you think? Yeah, I actually also really loved this film. And I think what 
the writer-director Todd Field here is doing is really fascinating. It's It's gotten, I think, a kind of unfair tag of being a quote-unquote Me Too movie, kind of in the same way we've seen a lot of movies get the this is a Black Lives Matter movie. I think that's reductive because if you watch it, it's, yes, there are elements of that because Lydia Tarr, the character played by Kate Blanchett, she's this decorated musical conductor and composer and she it becomes accused of using her power um, to um, manipulate relationships with younger and more inexperienced students. And and uh, and mentors and mentees. And what I think is interesting is that this is actually kind of a horror movie. It's a psychological thriller. There are things that are happening in this film where at one point you don't really know where reality, if we're in the real world or if we've moved into this other realm that might be in Lydia's head. Um, so when you look at it as that, it becomes much more than just a Me Too movie. It becomes this really interesting study in um, of, of ego, of, of uh, memory, and and just like toxic relationships within hierarchies and in like in the field of musical um, in the few in the field of classical music. Candace, as Aisha mentions, this is uh, Tar was a, a psychological thriller, um, very much happening sort of in Lydia's head. How did the the tone and the style of the film work for you? Yeah, you know, I actually never thought of that until she just said that, and I and I think that's totally fair. Um, I, it's, it's funny because a lot of people have been asking what are we supposed to feel about Lydia and I really think that's a, one, I think everyone brings something different to this, to a movie like this. I mean, she's not a likable, she's, she's there, there's pretty much nothing redeemable about her. So in that sense, there's going to be this kind of distance of the trying, the film doesn't try to answer the morality question, which I really appreciate about it. I really appreciate that it kind of puts the onus on the audience to really um, engage with it however they feel. Um, and I love, I, in general, I love movies that make me uncomfortable. And this one made me deeply uncomfortable in the very best way. Um, because I think for the most part, Kate Blanchett is in most of the scenes. And so we're really, really sitting with her and all her terrible decisions throughout. It's what is it nearly three hours. (laughs) Um, and so I, I found it increasingly intense and increasingly less like her spiraling, um, but also very controlled at the same time. There is a, there is a unsettling nature of that in an, in and of itself. And John, quickly, what were your thoughts for on Tar? Um, I think we should talk about Kate Blanchett's performance. The second big scene in this film is I, I don't know, I think it's about a ten minute scene. It's a single take where Kate's character is talking to some students at Juilliard. Um, it's remarkable piece of performance what she says is unbelievable the way Todd shoots it is unbelievable um and we don't necessarily like her but we didn't really like Hannibal Lecter either but we're interested in what happens to them so you don't have to be a likable character to have the audience care about how your life is going to turn out a film yet to be released is women talking it comes out December 23rd but it's already got critics talking the film is set in a religious commune where the eight main female characters must grapple with rampant sexual assault through secretive roundtable discussions. It is a part of our faith to forgive. We will be forced to leave the colonies if we do not forgive these men. None of you will listen to reason. We know that we've not imagined these attacks. We know that we are bruised. 
frightened and terrified. Hope for the unknown is good. It is better than hatred of the familiar. And we could not endure any more violence. Frances McDormand Axon and is a producer for Women Talking. Canadian Sarah Polly is the director. Yeah, John, I know this made one of your top films of the year. What did you love about it? Uh, this is my top film of the year. It is, I mean, first of all, let's pause and say the three movies we've talked about, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, Tar, and, and Women Talking, all led by female actors. So yay to that. This is an adaptation of a novel by Miriam Taze that was inspired by a true event uh, in a Mennonite colony in Bolivia. There's no denomination in the film itself. This is a story about female empowerment. This is a story about a group of women in a religious community who have been denied access to education. They don't know how to read a map. They are stuck. There's no fence. There are no fences, but they cannot leave this community even though they and their children are being sexually assaulted. And they've been told that they are responsible for the sexual assaults, that if they try to leave, they won't get into heaven, which is obviously a paramount importance to them, and that and that even if they try to leave, the people might come after them. So they have a decision to make in this film, stay, fight, or leave. And it's basically a conversation among these women, Rooney Mara, Jesse Buckley, Claire Foy, Judith Ivey, and others, to try to figure out what they want to do. And it's just a remarkable piece of storytelling. Um, I think Sarah Polly is a great filmmaker. She hasn't made a movie since Stories We Tell 10 years ago. Uh, Everything about this film feels, even though it's very specific to this community, feels relevant to today. It's about women having a voice, women being able to do what they want to do, and women telling the men, we're not going to do it the way you want us to do it. Um, It's a fantastic movie, and I can't recommend it highly enough. You know, there's one more film I want to discuss, which is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. I want to tell you a story. It's a story you may think you know, but (laughs) you don't. Over there! What is that? Papa! (gasps) It speaks! He's just a puppet! No, I'm not! I'm a real boy! People are sometimes afraid of things they don't know. I don't understand! Aisha, obviously a classic story here. How does Del Toro make it his own? Oh, man. Well, uh, people might remember that earlier, just a few months ago, another Pinocchio dropped, uh, and this was a what I call a soulless remake uh, of the CGI remake of the... Um, the 1940 Disney version. So Disney remade that one. What Pinocchio, what Guillermo del Toro is doing here is he is completely sort of reimagining the story in a much darker way. It's set against the backdrop of between World War One and World War Two and the rise of Mussolini and fascism in Italy. But and and so it uses that and and to incorporate into the story of Pinocchio that we all know and love. And this is a more acidic version and a more um, uh, just darker version of Pinocchio. Pinocchio, when he becomes when he's first introduced to Geppetto, he is annoying. Like Geppetto finds him irritating because he's just too much. And to and so this is the type of story we're seeing here is that like it's not just this very saccharine version of this classic fairy tale. It's got bite. It's got 
darkness, there is a lot of rumination about death and 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 what it means to be uh, loved and to love. And the animation is beautiful. Um, it's streaming on Netflix, but I would have loved to see this on a, on a big screen because it's just it's it's one of my favorite movies as well. I think it's really doing something different, and people should definitely seek it out because it's not the Pinocchio you think you're going to be seeing. Candace, is this a, is this a movie for kids? <laughs> I, I would say it's a movie for kids like Pan's Labyrinth is a movie for kids. So take from that what you will. Um, I, I, would, I would probably see it with kids, probably older kids, like 10, 11, or yeah, 10, 11. Um, not anyone probably younger than that, just because it's operating on such a level of complexity that I don't think anybody younger might really inter- might be able to understand some of it. Um, but it's very, very good. We've been talking with Aisha Harris, host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, Candace Frederick, senior culture reporter at HuffPost, and John Horn, host of the Retake podcast. He also covers arts and entertainment for KPCC. Today's producers were Michelle Harvin and June Leffler. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. Special thanks today to WHRO in Norfolk. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. This is 1A.